0: Uh, we are pressing forward in our sermon series as we've been going through the books of 1st and 2nd Kings. We're nearing the end, if you can believe it, uh, of this first book, the first half of the series, which is the book of 1st Kings. And we're getting into perhaps the uh, the old familiar stories. <laughs> uh, the stories about Elijah and the miracles that come at his hands and the amazing feats that he is able to uh, accomplish through the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word. And uh, this morning though we have a really interesting passage. At the end of chapter 17, these last eight verses, I think contain one of the most enlightening but also heartbreaking at the same time scenes, I think in the entire Old Testament. It's one of the scenes that uh, the more I read and the perhaps the more you just kind of let all of the events that lead up to this moment sort of hit you and let it sort of sit for a while. As I say, if you chew on this passage... Uh, You can be very much moved by it. And my aim today, this morning, by just examining these eight verses is sort of simple. It's really, I just want to press into a a topic that we mentioned last time and it has occurred perhaps in other venues. But just, I think it is so palpably here that I want to press into it and lean into it. Which is basically this. That it is God's habit... To work in and through and with our suffering. Not in its absence. And that might not strike you as a really amazing uh, theme. Or, uh, or some really incredibly novel topic to talk about. But I assure you that this I think is not only the predominant theme of scripture. But is the, the theme that I think it bears out in our lives. We are all sufferers. To one degree or another, there is degrees perhaps to our suffering and seasons to our suffering. We don't always grieve and suffer loss and go through adversity in the same exact ways. But I assure you of one thing, that regardless of what that suffering looks like, God is found in the middle of it, not on the other side of it. He's not on the outside of the storm sort of bringing the ship through it. Hopefully you make it through by your your wits or your will or your expertise. <laughs> He's with you in the middle of it. Just we could this is another sermon and I'm going to preach one maybe. But Mark chapter 4, the storm on the sea of Galilee. Where is Jesus? <laughs> He's in the boat with his apostles as they are going through the storm. And no, it's not a metaphor or analogy or anything that really happened. But I think the same truth holds for you, uh, for you and I here today. That regardless of what your storm looks like, regardless of what your suffering looks like, great or small, uh, incredibly grievous time or not, you have a God who is with you in the middle of it. Right in the heat of the storm, not in suffering's absence, but in its experience. If you listen to a lot of popular preachers, that's not a theme that you'll hear coming from their lips. Most pulpits, I won't say most, some pulpits would try to convince you of something other than this. That your suffering is a sign of something bad going on. That the, your suffering is a sign to, uh, that you need to keep working on something in your life or some such thing. Sometimes broken things happen to broken people because this is a broken world. And the point is not to try and avoid it. Not to try and always make sense of it. If you remember our studies of Ecclesiastes, sometimes suffering doesn't have a logical uh, box to fit in. Actually, I think the truth of all of Scripture is just this, that we have a God who never leaves us nor forsakes us, period. <laughs> all throughout life, we can be learning and relearning and actually living out that amazing truth that God's not outside of our suffering He's not some life coach who's trying to convince you that if you just do the right things and you make the right changes through your incredibly grievous moments that he will be there with you as you overcome. He is there with you in the ashes, in the doldrums, in the very hard times. And I think, I think there's no better passage to prove that than this passage right here. First Kings 17. Go with me in your minds. I just imagine as we look at last week, we spent a long time or most of the time uh, talking about this widow woman from Zarephath. Elijah is there with her and he uh, has just performed uh, through the the word of the Lord this amazing miracle where now this widow woman who was on the brink of starvation is now made to have a very full pantry. (laughs) A a barrel of, of meal and a cruise of oil that does not fail, that is inexhaustible. Remember verse 12, she confesses she can't entertain Elijah in her home because she's going to prep her last meal for her and her son. She has nothing to offer. And now, verse 15, and she went and did. Elijah gives her this amazing prophetic word that if she obeys, there is going to be an inexhaustible supply that is waiting for her in her pantry. (laughs) Verse 15, and she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruse of oil fail according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. (laughs) Just imagine, if you can, the joy that filled that house. From the brink of starvation to now, she's entertaining. Because I, I, this phrase just struck me. Notice it says at the end of verse 15 that not only is she eating to having a full belly and her son is too. But notice it says and her house. That those she is inviting into her home, she is able to be a host again. <laughs> She's able to have dinner parties, able to have people over to her home. What an amazing implication of this miracle. From the brink of starvation to now she's hosting dinner parties. And maybe I'm just... Speculating, This is pure speculation. But I just hear in verse 12 not just this hopelessness that she doesn't have anything for even her and her son to keep subsisting after this last meal. But I also hear in her voice this disappointment almost that she cannot give Elijah something. She's almost disappointed in herself that she cannot entertain Elijah in her home. So therefore, the reality of having guests in her home is now a home of feasting must have been one of just bringing her to the brink of, of brimming with delight. She's having people over, having conversation, I imagine laughter in this home. And then verse 17. The text unexpectedly and very suddenly turns on a dime. Notice, she has just experienced, and it says many days. We don't know how many days intervened between verses 15 and 16 and verse 17. But I imagine, let's say, a couple months go by. They're eating and they are, they are feasting. They are relishing in this miracle of Yahweh. This man of Yahweh has come and performed a miracle in this Gentile woman's home. And notice verse 17. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left In him. Suddenly, everything is different. Everything changes. The widow's son is now dead. He lies lifeless in her home. That house that was once a a house of feasting is now a house of mourning. They go into abject grief. After experiencing the abundance of Yahweh's supply, now they can, all they can feel is just untold and unmet pain. They are so uh, sorrowful at this turn of events because now there's no more laughter filling those halls. Were once dinners perhaps uh, extended into all the wee hours of the night. And there was great feasting and conversing and fellowshipping with many of her friends and neighbors. Now they are coming over to echo the sounds of her lament. This miracle then doesn't appear all that miraculous. Because her son is dead. The supply of the inexhaustible barrel of meal doesn't feel all of that special. Because her son is lifeless and that's no small point to make. It's, I think, crucial to the entire text that we uh, identify the fact that this boy was dead. He wasn't in a coma, he wasn't sort of just asleep, he, he wasn't any of those sorts of things. He didn't just faint or any of those things. The words of the text literally mean he, all of his life have left him. That which gives him life, his breath, his life force was gone. And just pause. It's a devastating thing. This widow who has experienced this incredible miracle has now had her whole life turned upside down. You can imagine her confusion. Imagine her frustration. Imagine her anger. And might we say, imagine her rage at this moment in her life where everything appeared to be turning around. Things are have gone from starvation to feasting and now back again to that place of devastation. Remember we noted last time that widows in this particular age were noted for uh, not being places of plenty. In fact, the word widow literally can mean in other places in the Old Testament, desolate places. And now you can see what has transpired. The widow has gone from a desolate place to a land of abundance. Now back to a desolate place. She is low. She is grieving this moment. And rightfully so, she questions the only thing that's really different uh, in her life up to this point. Notice verse 18. And she said, this is the widow, unto the prophet Elijah. What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Her response ought to be as devastating too. Her first reaction to this turn of events is to assume that this is all Elijah's fault. You, oh man of God, you've brought this into my home. You've allowed this to happen. And this, actually, this is your true intention. This was your true mission. Did you notice that? She says, verse 18, why are you here? Are you come only to remind me of all my past sins and iniquities and wrongdoings? And now you're here to slay, that is literally execute my son? This is her thought process. That that this prophet here, this prophet of Yahweh that she perhaps had heard rumblings about through all the surrounding regions. He doesn't in any way represent this this Yahweh's grace. This is only a God of judgment. And he is here almost as if a, a grim reaper visiting her and reminding her of the abundant supply and then devastating her, wrecking her home. You can... You can sympathize with her. Almost as if she felt like she was being set up for this punishment. Why are you here? Why did you come at all? We could maybe have gotten by without you. Maybe we could have resorted to a life of thieving. And we wouldn't have to have that miracle. And we could have gotten by on our own. And now here, after this miracle, you take away my only son. You see, she... Links, perhaps past wrongs with now this present devastation. And who's to really blame her? She didn't grow up in temple. she didn't grow up in the sacrificial system. She is a Gentile. The only thing, the only real uh, sort of uh, experience and introduction to this God named Yahweh is this amazing miracle of provision. Who would have thought that he wouldn't be able to protect, too? This God provides, but he can't protect my family from this sickness. Why are you here? Elijah is similarly distraught. Notice that. And he said to her, verse 19, give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. So he took him away. He carries this body into his own room where he is likely closing the door behind him in just troubling and confusing grief. You can see it and you can hear it in his prayer. Notice. And he cried unto the Lord. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times. And cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. This is a a guttural prayer from this man of God. The prophet Elijah. That man of God that we will get to in weeks to come. Who stands before the prophets of Baal. Is here brought low in distress and in confusion and in grief. At this turn of events of God. Where this miracle is followed by this incredible tragedy. And he is echoing almost the same confusing statement that the widow did. Oh, did you do this? <laughs> Hast thou also brought this evil upon this home, God? He's, I would say, genuinely perplexed. Again, remember Elijah's calling and mission. We first meet him in verse 1 of this same chapter. He's suddenly on the scene, preaching to King Ahab. And as soon as that happens, he's called into the wilderness. Called there to sojourn by the brook Cherith, where he's fed by ravens. And then he's called to go back into enemy territory. Jezebel's daddy's backyard. And there find a widow woman where you will be given sustenance and supply. And then after all this the boy dies. I imagine Elijah is not really sure what God's trajectory is for his ministry. This prophet of God. This man of the cloth, we might say, this man who stands as a mouthpiece, mouthpiece for Yahweh is now in this moment where all of these different events are not coming together. Why am I here? I should be back confronting Ahab. I should be back ministering to souls as the prophet of the Lord. Why am I here? He cries. It's a it's a summons, this cry. He's literally pleading with God to answer. And he prays for the same sort of explanation that the widow was praying for. What are you doing, God? Where are you? Did you just really let this happen? Is this boy's death on my hands? Is his blood on my account? I just... Wonder, have you ever prayed something similar? What are you, what are you doing here, God? What, has there ever been a moment in your life where nothing seemingly makes sense? And this seemingly event that comes in to upset all of your best laid plans, the best laid plans of mice and men, so to speak. And all of a sudden, all of those are thrown out the window. Because something has occurred. And you have to Pause. What are you doing? God, did you let this happen? What are you doing here, God? You see, for the widow, this whole uh, uh, event has now turned all of those, the the miracle into just a cruel joke. This is unjust. How dare this God take away my son? (laughs) And Elijah, he couldn't make sense of this. He's just as confused. The man of God doesn't have a lot of wisdom to convey to this poor widow. And thus in the absence of any sort of explanation, he prays. I think that that's one of the most remarkable things about this whole text. In the absence of any sort of explanation, what does Elijah do? He gets on his knees and perhaps even lays down on the ground prostrate and just cries to the Lord. He can't explain this moment. He can't explain this suffering, this loss, this grief. Elijah, you see, is just like you and me for all of Elijah's exploits and, and wonder wonderworking and miracles most of which is still ahead of us and we are right to get into those where I'm excited to get into the first kings 18 where he does stand up to the prophets of Baal and is, and is an amazing man of God but you know he's still just like you and me he's not a super prophet With superhuman spirituality, who's able to do miracles because of his super duper sanctification. He's a flesh and blood man with skin and bones and grievances and confusion, and he too is just desperate for God to work. He's no magician. He can't wave his magic wand and bring this boy back to life. Instead, he has to just weakly and desperately surrender any ability that he might have. Any sort of knowledge that he might have up to this point of how God might work. And just totally plead for God's mercy. God, work on behalf of this boy. Work on behalf of this widow. God, according to your word, he is a servant who is desperate for mercy. To intervene. As you notice. That's what he does. He just prays. He cries. And he embraces. And he cries. Again. Verse 20. And he cried unto the Lord. And said. Oh Lord. My God. Hast thou brought this evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn By slaying her son. And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. This stretching himself out upon the child is a really interesting action. It's actually a gesture that's going to be repeated in 2 Kings chapter 4. And also, it's repeated all the way in Acts chapter 20 with the apostles themselves. It's a gesture that I think would be most predominantly seen throughout the Gospels. And the idea that this embrace of those who are dead or those who are sick is indicative of, of the life and the power of the healthy one going into the sick one. You kind of see this is his action here of Elijah. He's stretching himself on the child almost as if to take his position. He's trying to totally identify with this dead, lifeless boy's condition. And he's saying, God, do to him or do to me what you did to him and let my life pass into him. He is putting himself in the boy's place, which is a remarkable scene for this prophet. You can see the desperation in Elijah. He's desperate for this widow not to continue on her own. Perhaps this was her only son. We are not told she had other, siblings, other children, other offspring. She's a widower. Those uh, widows in those days were left to themselves mostly. Mostly. And here her perhaps only son has passed away. A truly desolate place. And yet in that desolation, in that desperation, notice who's listening. Verse 22. This is, a, this is just awesome. <laughs> and the Lord heard. The Lord heard. He's noticing what's going on. He hears what's happening. He is aware of every single turn in this moment, in this scene. He is aware of it all. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. The Lord was paying attention all along. <laughs> He was aware of all of this and he is always aware of those who are broken hearted. Psalm 34:18 is just a verse that struck me this morning and it says the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such that be of a contrite spirit. Another way to translate that word contrite there in Psalm 34:18 is crushed. Those who are crushed in spirit, those are precisely the the lot that God is close to. He is near to the broken and crushed. Can you imagine two more broken or more crushed people than Elijah and this widow here? And that same sovereign Lord who spoke and worlds came into being is here close enough to where he can hear their desperation. And then with just a word, perhaps even a flick of the finger, the boy revived. He lifts up the prostrate prophet and he brings back the life of this young boy. You know, the, again... The boy was not asleep. The words are indicative of what occurred. The soul of the child came into him again and he revived. He didn't need medicine. He didn't just need some sort of, uh, sort of in- uh, way to get out of his incapacitation. He needed resurrection. And guess what? That's what Yahweh provided. He answers this flustered and frustrated prayer of this man of God, Elijah. And he meets it with incomparable mercy. Because he allows the soul of this young boy to come back into him. And he's revived. And then he's returned to his mother. I was imagining this scene. Because remember earlier? This tells us that Elijah takes him up into a loft. Into an upper room. He walks up some stairs and lays down this little boy on his own bed where he's been invited to stay in this widow's home. And then this miracle occurs. The boy's life is returned to him. I just, I just pictured it in my mind, mind's eye as Elijah is carrying this boy back down the stairs and they're creaking as stairs tend to do. Who is the widow greeted with? Not one, but two living, breathing souls. And Elijah took the child. Verse 23, and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, see, thy son liveth. How astonishing, how uh, uh, inconceivable here in this moment that now this boy who was dead, he is alive again. This God is a life-giving God. And this stunning fact prompts this Gentile widower to this amazingly stunning confession. Notice verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. What an amazing confession. She, this widower, this Gentile widower from Zarephath is privy, is able to witness not one but two miracles of Yahweh, the God of Israel. An abundant supply and then an abundant miracle of life. And notice she ties this not to Elijah but to the words that were in her mouth were in his mouth. Notice again and the woman said to Elijah now by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. It's firm. It's confidence. It is the only thing that is stable is what that phrase is implying. That's Where the power resided. Not in Elijah. In Yahweh. In the word of Yahweh alone. He gets all the credit for this entire moment. For this entire scene as he always does. He always gets all the credit. And there's so much that we could talk about this scene. There's so many places we could go. Because you see, uh, in one way we could look at this whole chapter as just a chapter of preparation. Because essentially Elijah is going to repeat many of the same patterns that appear here in short form. He's going to repeat them in his life by his own experiences in chapters 18 and 19. Where there's this abundant provision of God's power which is followed by a very painful and, and very perplexing predicament for this man of God. All of which again is resolved by the word of the Lord alone. So we could see this as God's wilderness really for Elijah. Much like Jesus went to the wilderness for us. But I think in perhaps a more resonant way. This scene is perhaps strikingly similar to many of our own lives. Maybe even you here this morning. Perhaps you identify with this widow. And you're angry at a God who you thought would come through for you. There's that thing that you were expecting him to do. And that you expected him to uh, make it turn out this way. Why did you allow this to happen God? Why didn't you come through for me when I thought you would? You provided but you haven't protected. Or perhaps you protected but you're not providing. And you're angry at a God who is seemingly uh, doing divergent things. Or maybe you feel like the prophet. Totally just... Bewildered, dumbstruck. You have no words to offer a person who is grieving in front of you, and you're just confused by the strange choice of God when He would not intervene. And that person you loved was taken away. Why would you let this happen? Why would you let that person not live and not get over whatever malady they were facing? Why would you take this job away? Why would you take this away? you just have to cry out. God did you do this? Have you brought this evil upon me? In this house? If you feel like Elijah. Or like the widower this morning. That's probably a good thing. Because the solution to this passage. Is the solution. And maybe solution is too quaint of a word. But the hope. Of this passage of the hope for you this morning. Which is one thing. The one thing that I think is championed throughout all of scripture. Which is this. Is that God's word is the only word that matters. His is the only word that matters. All the way back in verse 1, it says that the prophet was preaching according to the word of the Lord. And that the widow's barrel of meal was filled according to the word of the Lord in verse 16. And that now this boy has been revived according to the truth of the word of the Lord that was in the prophet's mouth. At every single turn in this narrative, the God of the word is solidifying, championing, showing you, demonstrating the authority of his word above all else. And notice how he does it here. Through miracles. He allows two miracles to come at the hand of Elijah. And we are rightly so uh, captivated by that. But I think it's vital we understand Why Elijah's day was filled with signs and wonders And it's not so that we could have faith healers make a buck It's precisely because The word of the Lord Had gone deaf in the ears of Israel Paganism Running in the streets. Sodomy was filling all of society in Israel. There was a day and age that was brimming with iniquity and idolatry. And so what happens? God takes it upon himself to intervene and cut himself into the narrative. (laughs) By allowing these supernatural events, these signs to take place. To demonstrate what? That his word still governs all things. Iniquity is having its heyday. This this whole horrible uh, idolatry. This Baal worship. This, this false gods are, are seemingly taking over. But guess who's still ruling? Guess who's still governing? Guess who's still in authority? The word of God. The word of Yahweh. And this is ultimately what Jesus himself brings to bear in his own life and ministry. His signs and wonders weren't just to like make the crowds astonished in his ability to heal they were meant For a singular purpose to serve as irrefutable evidence that he was who he says he was. He was the divinely anointed of God from Daniel 7 and 9. He was the son of the most high. He was Yahweh in the form of a man. He was the word of God in fleshly form as it says in John chapter 1. That's who he was. And he shows us that by showing you he has the power over all things. Over all things spiritual and over all things natural. And I could preach that sermon again from Mark chapter 2. But that's exactly what's happening in Mark chapter 2. Remember he goes up to the lame man and he says not be healed. What does he say? Be forgiven. And then he reads the Pharisees minds. And he says to them, what do you think is easier? To say, be healed, get up and walk, or be forgiven? And then he's astounded by them still. And he says, to show you, I have the power of both, essentially is what Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, this is Mark 2, read it. He says, get up and walk. And the man that gets up walks away and he doesn't just walk away, he walks away forgiven because the same God who can speak worlds into existence, can speak life and back into souls, can speak forgiveness and we are forgiven. That's the power of this word. He can speak and it is so. That's how authoritative it is. That's what this God aims to show us. So, this word of God, who you might feel, is far away from you. I promise you this morning, he is not far away from your anguish, far away from your pain, your doubts, your suffering, all of the things that torment you. All of the things which weigh you down. He's not caught napping. He wasn't caught napping when the boy's breath left him. And he was not slacking off. And neither is he unaware of what you are enduring. All of the things that we endure are made to show that there is one thing and one thing only that serves as our lifeblood, our foundation, all that we are, our hope, our truth, our everything. It's the word of the Lord alone. So when all of our sorrows... Are deafening out all of the things that we've found to be successful. When all of our tragedy is replaced with triumph. When all of the provision like the widow is now replaced with just untold pain. And all of that suffering. Guess who's there? Guess who's always there? Guess who has never left? It's the God who positions himself in our suffering. Not outside of it, not on the other side of it, but precisely in the middle of it. To show you that he has the power over all things spiritual and natural. And he can speak and it is so. And he is with you through the storm. Just like he showed himself strong in this life of the widow. and the life of Elijah. This is the word of God which meets us in our deepest and darkest need. He doesn't leave us alone. That's where he's found. This is where he sets up shop. (laughs) Right in our suffering. This is who we have. The word of the Lord alone. The word of Yahweh in flesh. See, we have something truer and better than Elijah had. We have the true and better Elijah. Whose name is Jesus. Who stretches himself out over all of our sin and our death. And he takes it. He actually takes it as his own. So that he might give us his life. This is who you have with you in tragedy, in heartbreak, in suffering. However great, however small, however piercing or however minuscule it might appear, your moment of hurting, you have a savior next to you. You have a God who is with you. You have a word which is always truth. This morning, do you believe that? Do you know that? Can you say like this widow woman from Zarephath, I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth, the only truth, the way and the life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.